job. I mean, all they do is the Tough Mudder. Or insert a related type of event. There's the Spartan race that's real popular. Um, which is apparently supposed to be a little harder than the Tough Mudder. And, and there's this guy online who, that's really all he does. Full-time, he has health companies that sponsor him, and he goes and he does that. Um, I appreciate those people. And they inspire me. And, and they kind of, you know, kick me into eating a little bit better and, and becoming a little bit more disciplined with my exercise routines. Um, but I can almost guarantee that I'll never become one of those people. That I'm never going to reorganize my whole life around this kind of obstacle course, um, caveman, strong bodybuilder mentality, right? I mean, that's just probably, I'm always going to probably be in the crowd that just goes, that's kind of cool, I can appreciate it, I might want to get inspired from it a little bit, see what I can benefit from it, but I'm not going to kind of go all in um, in that area. Now, there are some people who look at events like the Tough Mudder or the Spartan Race, things like that, and who go, I just don't get it. I mean, I don't get it at all. I want my cheeseburger, I want my fries. I, you don't inspire me at all, you disgust me, okay? I don't want any part of it. I think the larger group are those that admire it. Right, and think there's some kind of appeal to it. It's kind of amusing. It may be something you want to experience once or twice. Uh, and then there's those few people who really like jump into it, right? Who reorganize their entire lives around it. What we'll see this morning in our text is that the reactions that people have to events like Tough Mudder and the Spartan Race are actually pretty similar to the reactions that people had and still have to the person and work of Jesus. Um, there are those who are opposed to it, who it just doesn't have any appeal to. Um, who, who stand outside of it. Then there is a larger crowd who is somewhat intrigued by Jesus um, and, and, and gets inspired by him and wants to have some sort of beneficial relationship with him. And then there's a very smaller group who, who go all in. I mean, who radically kind of reorganize their entire lives around the personal work of Jesus. So this morning we want to look at those groups, we want to look at those reactions, and we want to ask ourselves what category we might fall into as we start our, the, the new year. How have we reacted to Jesus? What group might we find ourselves in? Um, so we'll pick it up in Mark chapter 3. We'll pick it up in verse 7. Um, some context as we get into here. Remember, this is right on the heels of Jesus um, doing some things on the Sabbath that the Pharisees and scribes thought he shouldn't have done. So he makes very upset the leading religious people of the time. In verse 6, the Pharisees held counsel with the Herodians, um, so with the guys in power, how to destroy him. So there is now organized opposition against Jesus. What he does in this passage will be in reaction to that organized opposition. Okay, um, So you have, for once and for all, Jesus has put himself in the line of fire with those in charge. This is going to lead directly up to his death. And then we read in verse 7, Jesus, after this, withdrew with his disciples to the sea. And a great crowd followed from Galilee and Judea and Jerusalem and Idumea and from beyond the Jordan and from around Tyre and Sidon. When the great crowd heard all that he was doing, they came to him. And he told his disciples to have a boat ready for him because of the crowd, lest they crush him. For he had healed many, so that all who had diseases pressed around him to touch him. And whenever the unclean spirits saw him, they fell down before him and cried out, You are the Son of God. And he strictly ordered them not to make him known. And he went up on the mountain and called to him those whom he desired, and they came to him. And he appointed twelve, whom he also named apostles. So that they might be with him, and he might send them out to preach and have authority to cast out demons. He appointed the twelve, Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, the brother of James, to whom he gave the name Boanerges, which is the sons of thunder, Andrew, and Philip, and Bartholomew, and Matthew, and Thomas, and James, the son of Alphaeus, and Thaddeus, and Simon the Zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. 
So you get here in this passage two scenes that happen after Jesus meets organized resistance, okay? So the Pharisees and the Herodians, they, they meet together to see how they're going to destroy this man who's stepping over their sacred boundaries um, and who's creating this kind of stir among Galilee. And the first thing that happens is Jesus blows up in popularity. This might be the most popular Jesus gets throughout his ministry, okay? You have people from all around the area crowding in, coming to see him. He has to go out to the sea to get away from the crowds, um, the, the sense here is that the crowds are so big, there's a, a worry that Jesus is going to be trampled here. Right? I mean, his popularity has blown up. Um, from this point, before this point, there's really been popularity with Jesus' ministry from around his area in Galilee. Um, so kind of local popularity. He's a town hero, right? Um, we're told here now people are coming from Tyre and Sidon. These, uh, these are cities that are uh, at least 100 miles north of Galilee. Um, so people are coming from a long ways away. I mean, he's blown up in popularity. The crowds are there. This is as famous as he's going to get. And the crowds are there for a very simple reason, right? They want to be healed. They've heard this guy heal sicknesses. They've heard this guy cast out demons, and they want to be healed. He's, they come. He's, he does what they ask, right? He's healing sicknesses. He's casting out demons. Um, you have this interesting theme in here. You'll see this throughout the book of Mark. Jesus commands the demons not to talk about him. Not to talk about his identity. This is called the messianic secret. Um, it seems like Jesus wants his identity to be a secret throughout the Gospel of Mark, at least until the end of the Gospel. There's a couple reasons for this historically. Why perhaps Jesus told people and told demons not to talk about him. Wouldn't he want everyone to know that he's the Son of God? His disciples, the crowds, are always confused about who he is. The demons get it right, though. People who are healed get it right. And he tells them, don't go tell anybody. And you're thinking, Jesus, you're hurting your purposes here, right? Go tell them to tell everybody who you are. Um, there's a couple of reasons historically why this might be true, why Jesus might not want these people spreading the news of who he is. One is there's a lot of baggage that goes along with these titles. So son of God um, has a warrior militaristic feel to it for first century Jews. They're expecting the son of God to come back and fight the Romans. Jesus is going to go completely in the opposite direction of this. And so perhaps he doesn't want this title floating around without him being able to explain it, right? Without him being able to give context to it. Um, uh, perhaps as well, Jesus does not want the uh, unwanted attention of the authorities who have the power and means to kill him before it's his time. Um, Caesar is the son of God. Uh, Herod is in line with the son of God, right? Um, perhaps Jesus doesn't want unwanted attention from the authorities, um, Jesus himself will call himself the Son of Man. He'll use different titles from Christ and Son of God. Son of Man would be a title that only Jewish people would recognize. Um, Greeks, Caesar, would not care if someone went around calling themselves the Son of Man, right? Um, but they would care if someone got the title Son of God, if someone got the title of the Christ, the Messiah. Um, these were fighting terms. And so, um, for whatever reason, Jesus strictly orders him not to be known. And then, in, in response to this popularity explosion, okay, he goes up and he calls 12 disciples. He goes up onto a mountain. This is reminiscent of Moses going up on Mount Sinai. Um, and the, the important part about this passage here is he calls these 12 disciples is the number, 12. There's a very symbolic number. When Jesus chooses 12 apostles, these 12 disciples, 12 followers, it's a very intentional, symbolic act. Everybody in the first century, all these first century Jews, would know exactly what he's doing and why he's doing it. Jesus is, in a sense, here reconstituting Israel. You remember there are 12 tribes in Israel. When God called his people, Israel, the people of God together, they were divided into 12. Twelveness has always been a characteristic of the people of God. And when Jesus starts his movement, 
starts his followers. In response to the opposition and in response to the crowds, he withdraws. Luke says in Luke's version of the gospel, he says Jesus spent all night praying before this decision. He calls the 12 whom he desires. He calls 12 of them. Now, the twelveness is more important than the individual members of the disciples. Um, in fact, you probably don't know much about most of these disciples. We don't know much about most of the disciples. Um, give me one fact about Thaddeus. Anybody? No one? No? There's no shrines to Thaddeus somewhere? Yeah, I mean, we know a little bit about Simon, who he names Peter, about James and John, some of these others. Um, but the, the importance of these disciples are not their individual characteristics or what they bring to the table. Um, in the narrative, in the story, what's important is that he picks 12 of them. And he sets that up as his kind of starting movement. What Jesus is doing in action, symbolic action, he's saying, the people of God are those who follow me. I'm setting up, I'm redrawing the boundaries of who's in and who's out. And it's centering around me. At this time in history, Israel was waiting for redemption was hoping that God would come back and reestablish his people. Ten of the tribes had been destroyed by the Assyrians. Ten of the twelve tribes. They were gone. They were no, nowhere to be found. Two of them were back in the land, the southern two tribes, um, but they were still under Roman rule. They were still, in a sense, waiting for God to redeem them. And there was this widespread hope, not only that God would come and redeem Israel from the, the Roman Empire, but also that these ten tribes would show up again. That the 12 tribes would be reunited somehow, some magically how, right? These 10 tribes were killed hundreds of years ago. They were gone. They're just not around. You only have these two tribes left. But there's this hope that the 12 tribes would show back up. God's people would be reunited. And what Jesus is doing here symbolically, in a very powerful, very intentional, um, very in-your-face, radical kind of way, is saying, hey, the people of God are being reconstituted. God is showing up to redeem his people. And it's no longer now about circumcision or Sabbath-keeping. It's not about the Torah. It's about me. It's those who follow me. Jesus calls his disciples, calls the 12, and you have this list here of the 12. Um, 12 is symbolic. We don't know, again, a whole lot about this group. We know a couple of facts about the group as a whole. Um, the first one is we know that this is a diverse group of, of individuals, okay? Um, these people come from different aspects of life. You have some fishermen. Um, you have some tax collectors. Um, you have different socioeconomic backgrounds that they're coming from. You have different regions that they're coming from. Um, you have different ethnicities. Um, and you have different political leanings, interestingly enough. You have, if we were going to put it in our terms, you would have in this group people on the far right, like like Rand Paul, right? Far right. Ron Paul. Ron Paul, 2012. And then you would have, you'd have people on the far left, like Clinton, 2016, right? Or maybe like even farther left than that. And you'd have them in the same group, um, which would make for, you would think, very interesting conversations around the campfire, right? I mean, Jesus does not show up to a group of people in the first century who have no opinions about anything in the world. They have very firm opinions about how they think things should be done and how they think God's people should live and how we should react to the Roman oppressors and those kind of things. Should we um, collide with them? Should we um, fight with them? Should we collude with them? Should we cozy up and become friends with them? Um, and Jesus brings a very diverse group of people with very different opinions, and somehow they manage to live together in this one little community. And this first community, these 12 disciples, are what the church kind of draws from. This is um, the church's lineage, its heritage, people who follow Christ's community. As Before there were bells and, and whistles and smells and buildings, the church was a group of people who, who had Jesus at their center and who followed him. 
very literally. And so you and I today as the church, we, we draw our heritage all the way back to these 12 disciples, these 12 men who were called out, who were chosen to follow Jesus. They're a very diverse group. I think there is something here for us to hear, particularly in our politically divided world right now, um, that the, whatever the church is, is a place where Republicans and Democrats find something more important that they can agree on. Um, it's a place where they can come together and, and worship together and find community together. Um, it's a place where ethnicities are no longer separate. Right? All these boundaries are broken down in God's kingdom and his community. It's a very diverse group. And it's a very ordinary group. Um, there's nothing spectacular that stands out about any of these disciples. Um, some of them perhaps come from wealthier backgrounds than others. Um, none of them by any means, though, are your superstars in the world. Okay? Um, these aren't game changers, world changers. These aren't celebrities. These are ordinary group of people who fail often. Um, if you think back to the good old days when the church was pure and faithful, all right, you're making up some kind of world, right? The very first 12 disciples, we're going to see these guys fail over and over again throughout the story. So one of them ends up betraying Jesus. Um, but these are the 12. Jesus calls these 12 men to follow him. Um, Jesus has the crowds. He has his opponents. And then he has his followers, the disciples. He calls them out to follow him. Um, I was in Utah a few months ago, earlier this, uh, well, not this year, earlier this calendar year. I'm a teacher, so I think from August to May. Um, and I went to the Mecca of Mormonism, right? And it's interesting. I, I learned a lot about the religion uh, of Mormonism. Um, they actually have 12 living apostles right now. And they say that's the way Jesus set up his church. You have 12 apostles. They kind of run everything. It's like a, a board. It's like an elder team. They make decisions for the church. And it was interesting for me to reflect on why um, mainstream Christianity, um, Protestantism, Catholicism, we don't, we don't have 12 apostles. We, don't, we didn't replace the 12 apostles. Um, Judas gets replaced. If you remember in the book of, of um, Acts by Matthias, he gets replaced. But when the others die, they don't get replaced. These 12 apostles are still the 12 apostles. Um, except for Judas. Um, the reason historically is an interesting one to me. It's because the Christian belief in the resurrection of the dead. Um, because Christians believed that there would be this physical resurrection when Jesus returns. And so if you've got 12 seats, right, for the 12 apostles, you can't keep replacing them because when we're resurrected, there's going to be some, some space management problems, right? <laughs> some awkwardness. That's my seat. No, I actually replaced you. That's my seat now. No, that's, that's my seat now. Um, they replaced Judas. He lost his seat by betraying Jesus. But once they replace Judas, I mean, these 12 are the 12. Um, Christian belief uh, has actual, like, real consequences sometimes in how we do things, how the church runs. Um, this is the reason why um, Christians historically have buried instead of cremated, right? It's the resurrection of the dead. Um, they want to make things a little bit easier and quicker for God, right? It's our belief in the resurrection. Um, we bury them. So we, we have these 12 apostles called out here, um, and these are Jesus' followers, okay? This is the small group that follows Jesus, and this is what the church traces itself back to. What we want to be as Christians are these followers, people who organize our life around Christ. Um, you can identify three things about these followers, okay? Three truths about Jesus' followers. The first one we see here in this passage is that Jesus' followers are called out um, by him. He chooses them. He calls them. He names them. So we're told Jesus chose the 12. Again, Luke says he spends a whole night in prayer deciding who's going to be the 12. He calls out to those whom he desired. He appointed them. He names them. He calls them apostles. This, this simply means sent ones, my messengers. He names them. He gives actually some of them actual names, real names, new names, nicknames. He calls Simon Peter in Greek. That's rock. 
Um, it would be like naming someone, nickname someone Rocky. Okay, Peter lives out this nickname pretty well throughout his life. Uh, he gives James and John the nickname Sons of Thunder. At one point, they want to call them fire on a city and destroy the, the city. And so perhaps they earn this nickname as well. Um, it's interesting that Jesus gives some of the disciples a new name. I think there is this sense in, in which we as Christians, when we come to Christ and we're called by him, get this new identity. And a name often represents this identity that we have. The name is very important. Um, we're promised actually in Revelation 2, and this is, I think, one of the more interesting promises we have in the Bible, at least for me, uh, that when Christ returns, he's going to give all those who were faithful to the end a new name on a white stone that only the person in Jesus will know. And I've always, for whatever reason, thought that was an interesting promise and, and kind of look forward to that, right? Um, one day I'll have a nickname from Jesus, and you won't know it, but, but Jesus will know it, and I'll know it. And we'll all have this white stone with this new name on it, this, this new identity that Christ gives us. Um, he, in advance, gives this to, to Simon and John and James. He gives them this new name. He calls them out. Um, this is, I think, what's true of Christ's disciples, both then and now. There's a sense of chosenness. There's a sense of being selected. There's a sense of, of being called to Christ. Um, I was talking with a friend earlier this week, and he was talking with some atheists, and, and they asked him, why did he believe in Christ? And he said, I didn't really have a good answer. I don't, I don't know. I didn't know what to tell them. I didn't have like a, a clear answer for them. And he kind of came to me and was like, I, I'm kind of, kind of caught me off guard. I don't know. We should have an answer for this, right? And, and as we were talking about it, we were kind of talking through. And I said, you know, bud, I don't, I don't think really I have a, like a, there's no six reasons I can list out. And this is why I believe. Um, there's no, right, as, as much evidence as there is, right? I don't think my belief is the culmination of scientific data I've accumulated, for me, there's this sense of being called. There's this, this super rational, it's more than I can explain with words, sense of being called by Christ. I've been chosen. There's this gravitational pull that I've found on my life, where even when I go away from Christ, I'm pulled back in. I'm sucked back in. Whether I wanted to or not, I felt like he has gone on the mountain and called my name. Why do I believe? Well, I, I feel like he's called me. I feel like my life is heading that direction. I feel like whether I wanted to U-turn or not, the gravitational pull would take me back in. It's maybe not a satisfying answer to an atheist, but I think this is a reality for most of our, our, our lives. Um, and in fact, I, I don't think human beings really make decisions necessarily on the scientific data you can accumulate. Um, I think you make decisions uh, on a much more emotional, much more spiritual level most of the time. Why, why do we believe? Why do we follow? Well, like the apostles, we're, we're called. We've discovered the sense of chosenness that we have. We read it in our scripture this morning. We've been predestined in him. Um, we see Jesus dying on the cross, and we, uh, through the Spirit, realize that that was for us. And so we come to him, and we follow him. So the disciples are called out, and then they are called out so that, for a purpose. There's a reason they're called out. They're separated from the crowds. And so that, the first word here in verse 14, they can be with him. So the disciples are going to leave everything behind. They're going to follow Christ, whereas the crowds don't um, actually literally follow him. And they're going to learn how to live like Christ lived. They're going to be tutored in the way of the kingdom. So Jesus is going to, over the course of a few years, teach them how to live or reteach them how to live. They've built up habits and ways of living and ways of relating to God and others that aren't um, the way that God has intended. And Christ is going to um, reestablish these things in their lives. So he's going to teach them how to pray. 
going to give them the Lord's Prayer. He's going to teach them um, how to relate to God and how to think about God. He's going to teach them how to relate to other people, how to love other people, how to forgive other people. They're going to see him doing these things. He's going to give them instructions on these things. One of the things that means to be a Christian is to be called out from the rest of the world to be with him, to be with Christ. Even today, you and I as the church are called to be different from the rest of the world. We're called to be an alternative society, an alternative community. We're a group of people who lives qualitatively different from the rest of the world. Um, we relate to God differently. We relate to others differently. Um, we should live lives that are, are different and are um, confusing to people outside. Um, Christians should have stories that sound crazy. We could say it like that. Um, Christians should make decisions that sound crazy. We, we leave it behind like we saw the first four disciples when Jesus calls them. They, they leave their economic security behind. They leave their social security behind, their families, and they go and follow after Christ. That's what we're called to do is to, to make sacrifices in our lives, to give things up, to, to be shaped further and further and further into Christ's image. So they're called out, they're transformed, they're with Christ, and then they are sent out to preach. In verse 15, to have authority to cast out demons. So they're called to join Christ on its mission. They're called to co-adopt Jesus' kingdom agenda, make it their own agenda. Um, there are um, passages in the Gospels we'll read um, and look at where the apostles do this. They go out and they're given the authority that Jesus has. And they go out and they preach the kingdom. They go on these successful missionary trips. They go out and they heal the sick and they cast out demons. They do things that they naturally would not be able to do. Jesus gives them a new authority. He gives them a new spirit, a new power that allows them to go enact the kingdom in ways they haven't beforehand. Again, it's the same for you and I today. When we follow Christ, when we become his disciples, when we become his followers, we are sent out on the same mission. Um, we're sent out to go adopt Jesus' kingdom mission as our mission. It doesn't mean necessarily that we'll, we'll all be third world missionaries right, or, and quit our jobs, but even in small situations, in our workplaces, in our families, with our friends, we are called to use our resources to leverage for the kingdom, to bring God's reign and rule to the places where we are, um, abroad or at home, um, far away or close, um, with people we don't know or with people we know well. Um, and we're called to, if we're, we're doing it, I think, correctly, do it more than we'd be able to naturally. We talked a little bit about this when we talked about the Spirit, the Ghost Protocol series. Um, one of the things the Spirit does, Holy Spirit, is He gives us gifts, gifts that go beyond our natural gifts, that allow us to, to be on mission in a way that we wouldn't be on mission ordinarily. Um, the disciples, I don't think, had probably ever cast out a demon or healed somebody. Um, but Jesus gives them this authority and sends them out, and they go out on this, this mission field. Uh, it's been said there are two types of Christians. Missionaries and imposters. Missionaries and fakes. Right? To be a disciple of Christ, to follow him, is to adopt his mission is to take on his agenda as your own agenda, um, is to put aside whatever other plans and hopes you had for your life and to use your life to leverage God's kingdom here on earth uh, as it is in heaven. Um, now, you've got these three groups, okay? The Pharisees, they're on the outside looking in. You've got the crowds, and then you've got the disciples. Um, and I want to ask the question, I, I don't think any of us here would probably fall into the category of the Pharisees and the Herodians. Um, you're at church, right? Sunday morning, you could be sleeping in. I'm guessing you're not opposed to Jesus. Okay, I'm guessing you're probably not indifferent, right? I'm guessing that, that some, something about Jesus appeals to you. Um, but I do think perhaps we need to think about whether we're in the crowd category or in the follower category. 
I think this is where a lot of our church culture maybe perhaps gets it wrong. Uh, it's we're good at creating crowds of people who admire Jesus, but, but not so great at creating followers of Jesus, disciples, people who reorganize their entire lives around Christ, who are transformed into his image, who adopt his mission as their own. Um, you'll see the crowds. There's always crowds where Jesus goes. The crowds are always looking for something to benefit themselves. Um, they're in it for what they can get out of it, which is not necessarily in and of itself bad. Um, but they're pressing in. They want to get close enough to benefit, to get a sickness healed, to get a demon cast out. The disciples, however, are going to be people who commit in a sacrificial way to follow and be like Christ, who press in no matter what, whether it seems to benefit them or not who are willing to commit, who are willing to reorganize their lives, who are willing to turn upside down in order to follow this Messiah, this King, this God. They're willing to sacrifice. They're willing to commit. The crowds are the people who are not willing to commit. You might call the crowds fans of Jesus and the disciples followers of Jesus. There was a, a pastor of a megachurch who, who wrote a book not too long ago called Not a Fan. And, and he said as he pastored his church with thousands of people, he, he was reading through the Gospels. And you notice that in the Gospels, there's always a distinction between the crowds and Jesus' followers. And there was always lots of, of crowds, lots of people in the crowds. And there was only a few followers. And Jesus would often run away the crowds. He'd say something hard. He'd give a harsh requirement for following after him. And all the crowds would leave, and his closest disciples would stay. And occasionally, he'll even ask them, why don't you leave as well? And they'll say, well, we don't know where else we would go. We're with you. We're following you. They had this gravitational pull towards Christ. And he, he read through the, the Gospels and he saw this distinction between the crowds who seemed to be fans of Jesus. They wanted to get close enough to get a benefit from him, but were unwilling to sacrifice. And then the small group of people who were really willing to sacrifice to follow after Christ. And he, he came to the conclusion that his church was basically a crowd who, who, who was willing to get close enough to, to get some kind of benefit from Christ, but not close enough that they were willing to sacrifice, that they were willing to actually reorganize their lives around Jesus, around his, his kingdom agenda. And so we, we have to ask ourselves, are we part of the crowd? Are we fans of Jesus? Or are we actually followers of Jesus? Are we actually committed, willing, able, have been making sacrifices? Do we have stories to tell about what it's like to follow Christ? So my, my buddy who was talking to the atheist didn't have a good answer for why he believed in Christ. But then his friends asked him what it looked like to believe in Christ. And he said, I had an answer for that. I could tell them my life story, right? I mean, I could tell them what I was doing. There were obvious things in my life. This is what it looks like for me to follow Christ. This is the choices that I've made. These are the things I've given up. These are the sacrifices that I've made. I have stories. I know what it looks like to follow Christ. I've done it. I've enacted it. Often I think this is more important than the why, is the how, is showing what it looks like on the actual road, on the actual journey. Um, followers of Christ have stories. Um, fans of Christ have desires and longings. Um, followers, though, have sacrifices behind them. Um, followers have, have tales of obedience and tales of struggle. Um, Crowds just want the benefit, and they, they want to press in close enough to get the benefit, but not too close that it requires something of them, that it costs them, that it, it creates a sacrificial um, requirement in their lives. There are lots of ways, perhaps, that we fall into this crowd temptation. 
um, the benefit of, so when I was growing up, the benefit was the afterlife, right? This is how I was sold on Christianity. Um, you want to um, have eternal life after you die. Be assured that, that you'll be taken care of after you die. Um, you don't want to just stop existing, or you don't want to go and be tortured or, or punished forever. And so you need to get close enough, right, to get the benefit of the afterlife. Um, now, growing up, though, this did not require a reorganization of your life, right? It required an altar call. It required kind of a mental game where you assent to certain beliefs. But, but there's nothing about it that called you to transform your life into Christ's image or called you to adopt his mission as your own. Um, it was get close enough to receive that benefit of the afterlife. I've become more convinced now, though, as I read the Gospels and as I follow Christ, that that is a crowd mentality. That's not really being in, in this community of the Twelve. That's not really following after Jesus. We're called to, to follow. We're called to be called out. There's the benefit of moralism, which I think permeates some of our, our churches. And, and this might be a paradoxical benefit you might get from Christ, but people like human nature likes having some morals and some laws. And we like knowing the five things we need to stay away from. And we like being able to feel good about ourselves if we can stay away from those five things. And we like feeling better than other people if we can stay away from them and other people can't stay away from them. And for some people, the benefit I think they get out of Christianity or out of church attendance is this kind of um, moral uprightness, being a good citizen in society. I'm a good Christian person. I'm nice. And that makes me feel good. And that makes me better than the people out there who aren't nice. And you don't hold the doors open at Kroger. And you don't pay it forward in the Starbucks line. I'm a good Christian person. And I feel good about myself. And I feel better than, than other people. But there's nothing inherent in that that causes me to, to really sacrifice. And there's nothing inherent in that that causes me really to go above and beyond and transform my life into Christ's image. Um, for some, the benefit of the crowd, the crowd mentality, the benefit is um, this therapeutic effect that religion can have. Um, for some, Christianity turns God into this cosmic therapist who prescribes out um, medication and remedies for our, our ills, our anxieties, our depressions, and our stress. Um, those who follow Christ realize, though, that sometimes God is not necessarily determined to take away all of your stress. Sometimes he pushes you into a stressful situation. Sometimes he forces you into a costly circumstance and to a place and time where you might have this crisis, where you might be called to sacrifice. Um, God is not, in the end, turns out necessarily all concerned about our perceived therapeutic needs. Um, but for some, this is what Christianity turns into, right? This is how I feel good. This is how I get rid of my guilt and my shame and my stress and my depression. And I convince myself and I, I receive kind of therapy through this. But it doesn't necessarily, again, involve me committing and me sacrificing and me transforming my life into Christ's image. In the end, though, um, Jesus is very clear that the crowds are, are missing out on the life that he comes to give. He'll, he'll give lots of warnings about hearing the word and not doing it. Um, he'll give lots of warnings about people who, who think they're on the inside and who will come to find out that they're on the outside um, when it's too late. And so the question this morning as we come together and worship is to evaluate our lives and see what category we might find ourselves in. Are we like the Pharisees and the Herodians uh, on the outside looking in, unappealed by Jesus, unamused, maybe even in opposition to him? Are we like the crowds interested, maybe inspired a little bit, maybe pressing a little bit close, traveling a little bit? 
but just to get some benefit, unwilling to make a sacrifice, unwilling to truly commit and reorganize our lives around Christ to really go all in? Or are we a disciple? Are we in the tradition, the heritage of one of these 12 who are with Jesus and who are sent out on his mission? This morning, if, if you um, maybe don't think you're one of these disciples, maybe, maybe you think, maybe I'm, I'm in this crowd. Maybe I'm pressing in for the benefit. Um, the good news is you're, you're always invited to, to become a follower. Um, and this morning is a, is a great time to do that as we um, come to the table and we recommit ourselves to Christ and to following him and to loving him and to serving him. Um, and just like these 12, we might find life uh, and life abundantly with our Lord. Would you pray with me?